Hi, friends. It seems like there is an alignment when atheists use the most common argument against the very existence of God, the problem of the evil or the monstrous God who permits the slaughter of innocents, that that aligns the atheists with Nazi Germany and the World War II Japanese kamikaze machine. I think that I've got a great argument for this. and I'm also going to give you about seven or eight arguments against the argument that the atheists most commonly call the, the problem of evil and the slaughter of the innocents by the Jewish God. I think that we need to start in a place that has to do with a narrative format of history. If you think about it, you go back to 1941. 1941 was the date that the Americans entered World War II. It was the date in December when the Japanese kamikazes attacked Pearl Harbor. And within the week, the Nazis had declared war on the Americans, thinking that we were routed thinking that we did not have a Navy anymore, thinking that our Air Force was shot up and that we could not come back and attack them. But they were wrong. What you see happening is this era of evil perpetrated by the Nazi regime that culminates in a letter. In my opinion, this is the culmination of the, of the greatest amount of evil that you see in World War II, is there's a letter that's sent to Hitler from one of his top commanders. I believe the commander is operating the theater in Poland, if memory serves. And the commander is asking for permission to use the rail line so that he can send war supplies and equipment to the front lines. Badly, badly needed. Keep in mind, this is in the last year of the war. So Nazi Germany is on their last throws. They desperately need supplies to the front line. And this letter is met with aggression and rejection by Adolf Hitler. In fact, Adolf Hitler replies and says something to the effect of, It is not my prerogative to send supplies to the front lines so that you may win and we may win a battle, implying that the glory is at the end of the battle if they were to win. But I need the rail lines so that I can ship the Jews back to the concentration camps. You see what happened? The evil Nazi regime chose the destruction of the Jews, the annihilation of the Jews, over its own winning and self-survival. And Jewish scholars would call this the the spirit of Amalek or Amalek. This is the person that eventually leads to the Amalekites that you witness throughout the Old Testament. Now, the Amalekites to me seem to be the primary subject of this complete accusation of the genocide. Now, Atheists are not very scholarly informed, not very informed of the Old Testament. They will commonly incite the, the aggression towards the unwarranted destruction of the innocent by God within the context of the, of the Canaanites. Now, I believe a subsect of the Canaanites is the Amalekites. The Amalekites, who are obviously named after Amalek or Amalek or Amalek, however you want to pronounce that. This is a descendant of Esau. Classically, it's been the grandson of Esau. And this has been a a spirit in the current Jewish philosophy. This is separate than Greek philosophy. This is separate than, than Roman philosophy or Christian philosophy. The Jewish philosophy, there's there's some current Jewish scholars, at least from the last 30 years, that have come, come out and said that there is a spirit of Amalek that is pervasive throughout the world. And it's something like the 
person or the concentration of people within a country or identifiable group that curse what God blesses, that despise God, despise God's people, that wish to seek genocide for God's people. And also, these are the people that lend themselves to be antithetical to the even existence. And obviously, the existence is also the propagation of God's people. And so you find this in the story of the Malachites in the Jewish scriptures. Now, it's important to note what they did to get on God's bad side. As the Jews are fleeing Egypt, they are probably in their weakest state. They have nowhere to go. They think they know where they're going to go, but they don't realize they're going to wander in the wilderness in the desert. They have lame people with them. They have children with them. They have pregnant women with them. They have elderly with them. And, and they're just now setting out on their own course. And what happens? It says that the Amalekites come up at the rear and strike them on the tail. The people that are trailing at the very end of the, of the procession out of Egypt, the Israelites, the people at the very end are the ones that are struck first by the Amalekites. Right off the bat, when Israel was weak, the Amalekites struck the weakest part of them. They struck the children. They struck the elderly. They struck the lame. They struck the blind. They struck the slow. They struck the elderly, the ones that could not fight and defend themselves. And ever since then, God has had somewhat of a curse on this group called the Amalekites. You'll see this take place about 200 years later where you'll hear about these raiding bands. Now, the Amalekites were nomadic people. These were people that were ravages, that, that would basically come into a society and consume everything of it, then move on, very nomadic in nature. And they would come in to the area where Israel had either planted crops or had you know lots of livestock. The scriptures say that they would come in with their camels and their people and they were numerous as the sand on the seashore and they would devour everything and they would put Israel's very life at risk. I think it's important to note here what God is trying to do in the story of the Israelites, right? It's different than what God's trying to do right now. At that time, God's trying to set up and build a kingdom for himself, for his people, on a specific plot of land commonly referred to as Canaan. Now, if the people are coming in, the Amalekites, coming in and eating up all the crops and destroying all the animals and basically putting Israel's life at risk every time they pass by, this is a problem. And it goes against what God is trying to do, right? The spirit of the Amalek, the spirit of the Malachites that these current Jewish philosophers talk about, this is... These are the people that try to destroy God's people. And it's pervasive. It's said in common Jewish philosophy that the spirit of Amalek, that it floats. So that at times it's concentrated in certain people. So it would be said that the, obviously the Amalekites were inclusive or, or had the spirit of Amalek. But it's also said that Nazi Germany had the spirit of Amalek. And it's philosophized that Adolf Hitler himself was a descendant of Amalek. Maybe not by blood, but rather by the the spirit through which he operated in his hate and his desire genocide against the Israelites. And so you have, the, you have this common era about this group of people that want to curse what God blesses. And it's said that whenever you cannot find a concentration of the spirit of Amalek on the earth, that it's then divided, that it is then diffused within the rest of the world, meaning it's in you and me. 
that there's a little bit of that hatred, there's a little bit of that animosity against God in you and me. And we must attack it. We must realize that on occasion, it mounts up and is concentrated globally. But when it's not, it's hidden. And it's hidden in all of us. And so that's something to think about when we talk about the accusation that atheists love to make, that God is monstrous. I can never believe in a God that would command the slaughter of the innocent, the slaughter of women and children. And it's a pretty powerful argument. It's a pretty powerful argument based off of feelings and emotions and the alignment with the thing that potentially looks like evil, but even though it's ultimate good. And so I think it's important that we, we look at this from a few frames of reference about reasons why it's impossible that God's commandment to do these things was wrong, meant that he was evil, or that meant that it would be right for you to reject him as a potential God. I think the, first, the best place to start is to go back to World War II. Because you see, when the Japanese entered the war in 1941, what they didn't know is that America's heart would come back. That America would outsmart the enemy and in the end would win, likely in the most moral of ways, but also through the greatest destruction. And so, as you see the war progress, you see this happen in 1945 at the Potsdam Conference when President Truman arrives in Germany with the other Allied leaders to figure out a way that they can stop Japan. Now, this is in July of 1945. I believe it was April, early May, when Adolf Hitler committed suicide in the Berlin bunker. And so Germany has been defeated, but there's still Japan on the horizon. There's still this Japanese threat. And how do they overcome it? Well, Truman arrives at the Potsdam Conference, and that very night he receives a cable that a secret project that the American government had been working on that had not told anyone about, that that project was successful. And the project was the $2 billion experiment to see if they could harness the power of nuclear into weapons. And the note just said, Mr. President, the test was successful. And so President Truman's Potsdam Conference changed the threat against Japan. He did not up the threat Rather, they made it easier for the Japanese to surrender. It was an act of compassion. It was an act of something like a, a warning shot across the bow, but also one that made it easier. Now, how did the Allied forces know that they had to make it easier for Japan to surrender? Well, they had cracked the Japanese code. There were wires and cables sent across the diplomatic fronts and also the war fronts that the Allied forces had cracked, and they understood what Japan was saying. And the reason they found out that Japan would not surrender under the first ultimatum, and the first ultimatum being that the Allied forces are demanding a full and complete surrender of the entirety of Japan, the reason they could not accept that was because of the emperor. You see, in Japanese culture at that time, the emperor was godlike, and it would be a refutation of the deatific status of the Japanese emperor if he were to have to surrender, that if he were to have to reduce himself, bow himself down to the authority of the Americans. And so they could not surrender, and so they had to reject the surrender. Now, knowing this, the Americans and the Allied forces decided that they would amend and make a second ultimatum. Amend the first ultimatum by making a second ultimatum that said, we will accept terms of peace if the Japanese military forces surrender. This is different because it excludes 
not only the people of Japan, but also the emperor. And it, and it should have been acceptable. But it said that in a private meeting with the emperor, the prime minister read this a little bit differently. Not that it was an act of compassion towards the Japanese people to give them one more shot at surrender without threatening the, the deity of the emperor, but rather it was a sign of weakness. The prime minister argued in front of the emperor that it was a sign of weakness, that there must be something that the allied forces know, that their defeat is imminent, and so they must double down. And so the Japanese rejected the ultimatum. Now, it's important to understand the fighting philosophy of the Japanese at this time, that these are the people that used suicide dive bombers, young people, very inexperienced, that are taught to fly into ships and American assets and allied assets to create destruction through their own sacrifice of their own lives. These are people who would go into the public schools in Japan and teach little girls how to take and sharpen bamboo sticks and create spears and teach them fighting techniques to be able to fight the Americans, fight the Allies, should they invade. And that was the plan all along that Truman realizes that they would have to invade. Now, the problem with invading is not only the issue with having to fight off the children and the entire Japanese population, but also this, that there were approximately 100,000 Allied prisoners of war being held with the command, with the orders pre-written and already in the hand of the commanders, that if the Allied forces were to invade the homeland of Japan, all the POWs should be executed on site. And so an invasion of Japan was seen by the Allied forces to mean an immediate death of the 100,000 POWs. Now, that may sound like a very, very large number, and it is a large number, but it's also important to think about what had happened so far during the war. That the, the war had cost somewhere between 55 and 60 million lives, the majority of which were civilians, likely in the great European cities that had been firebombed for the past nearly decade. It's also important to think about the troops that had been lost and the, the Jews that had been slaughtered. Some estimates as high as five or six million Jews, maybe a third of the population at that time, were wiped off, and, and Hitler was not satisfied in that. But for the Japanese who were unwilling to surrender, who converted the entirety of the population to be willing to fight to the death for the emperor and for Japan, the Allied forces could not invade. There had to be another solution. And this note that Truman received at the Potsdam Conference gave them another option. And so, through the second ultimatum, that you only had to surrender the forces, the emperor would still be free, the people would still be free, and the rejection of that really only gave the Allies, one option. And the option was taken out in August of 1945 in Hiroshima. It said that there were between 120 and 150,000 innocents that thought lost their lives nearly immediately. The, there was a five-square-mile section of the city that was pulverized, that was, that was converted to ash immediately upon the dropping of Little Boy by... The Enola Gay. And three days later, after the Japanese did not surrender, that there was no movement diplomatically with the Japanese, there was another one. That man was dropped in Nagasaki. It's estimated that somewhere around a quarter of a million Japanese, primarily Japanese innocents, were slaughtered. But the Allies understood that if they were to invade, it could cost at least one and a half to two million Allied soldier lives 
to invade Japan, to be able to take it over. And countless, perhaps tens of millions of Japanese citizen lives who were trained and ordered to fight the Allies if they were to invade. And so Truman and the Allied commanders made the decision to drop the weapons. To drop the weapons as a more peaceful resolution, as a resolution of practicality, as a resolution of mathematical logic, that it's better to only lose 200,000 versus losing millions and millions over a number of years. And so we find this moral dilemma at play that essentially is articulated like this, is, is would it be better to slaughter one innocent today versus 10 innocents tomorrow? And this is the paradigm that Truman had in front of him in World War II. And it's something like that that you read about in the Jewish scriptures, that it's more compassionate for a handful to perish than for the great number to perish. Now, I'm not arguing that it is good. It's, it's never good to have to slaughter innocents, but it does happen in warfare. And so the great question for atheists when they bring this up is, World War II, the battle in Japan, would you rather have lost 6 million or 200,000? Right? The innocents were still going to die in Japan. I think there's a direct correlation with what happened with the Amalekites. Probably another reason to think about this is this was a act of justice, right? The, the Amalekites over years, over hundreds of years, had tried to cause and wipe out the people of Israel over and over again. From the, the time they left Egypt, the slaughter of the innocents that were at the Israelites' tail, the wheat people, all the way to the destruction of their crops, destruction of their, their sustenance, their survival. And you'll see this over and over again that we'll talk about here in a little bit, that there's this repeated attempt at the genocide of the Israeli people by the Amalekites. And this goes over close to a thousand years of warfare. And so it is important to realize that some people can never be saved. And it may look like this. It may look like the reasoning behind the Amalekites' destruction is also similar to the reasoning behind God's desire for the Canaanites to be destroyed. Not only that they are occupying the land that he has promised to the Israelites through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but also this, that maybe they're, not, they're unsavable, that they're too far gone. In fact, it's said that the Canaanites were too far gone that God was somehow waiting for the fulfillment of evil to reach its pinnacle over the 400 years that Israel was in Egypt. Maybe this was a people that could not be savaged. Now, the name Amalek sounds a little bit like the ancient god of the Canaanites, of other people groups in that area, Moloch. Now, if you understand who Moloch is, Moloch, Moloch is the god that they would build out of metal. They build out of bronze or some other, some other derivative metal that could withstand a high amount of heat. And it would be built hollow. It was built hollow so that a fire could be built inside of it. Well, why would you build a fire inside? Wouldn't the God want to see the actual sacrifice? Well, the reason why you build the fire inside the hollow God Moloch is that his hands are like this. And people that are from these perverse societies would bring their infants and lay them in the arms of Moloch. And as the babies were there in this heated arms... The, the egregiousness of this is hidden in part by the playing of drums. Supposedly, 
to worship Moloch by a group of drummers that are off to the side. But classically, it's been known that the drummers played to cover up the screams and to cover up the, the sizzling of the infant's skin as it lay perishing before the perverted parents, the evil parents that sacrificed it. And so this is the type of society that, that the Israelites are dealing with, that all the way down to the infants, they're cursing these people. It's helpful also to think about the context of who God is, right? If you're looking at this, at the slaughter of innocence from the perspective of the temporal humanity, you would look at life begins at birth and ends at death. Now, from God's perspective, who sits outside of time, who believes that true life only comes after death, that you have a little bit of a different perspective on life, that if you're to get to life, you have to go through death in order to get to life. And this is one of the hard things for the atheist to accept is that their perspective is different. Now, they will invert the perspective when they begin speaking about the moral law. You'll notice the way that the, that the argument is formulated. They will formulate it something like this, that I could not believe or we should not believe in a monstrous God who would condemn the innocents to be slaughtered. It is basically a self-refuting question. It's a question with an argument embedded that is also self-refuting because of this. Two reasons. The first thing is it implies a moral law which we should all be governed by. In fact, not only we should be governed by it, but also the atheist saying that God should be governed by this moral law, that he should be ruled by this moral law, which inverts the position of God with the moral law. You see, only the higher can judge the lower. Nothing lower can judge the higher. And so if the moral law is something that's natural, that is built in because of evolution or biology, well, how could that judge a theoretical God in the atheist case? It's nonsensical. So he's inverting God, and he's basically taking the moral law, putting it above God in order to judge God. But what he's done here is he's basically said that the God that you're defining as God is all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, is not really God, but there's a God above him, right? If anything is above God, the moral law in this case, that is God. And the atheist is saying that there's a God, just the God is the moral law by the very articulation of the assertion within the question. The second reason is a little bit even more striking. It's that there's some common argument that we've had, this, that there's this common agreement among all of us to something which we've never discussed, that there's this common agreement that justice and the slaughter of the innocents, obviously the slaughter of innocents is not just if we were to do it, that the commonality is that we've all agreed at some point in the past that it's wrong to do this. And we've already agreed and consented that, that it's wrong to be unfair, that it's wrong to be unjust. And I think Lewis would put it this way, that it's very common when you see two children playing in school, that if they're sharing their apple, one of them gets a piece of apple to the other, and the other one has an orange, you automatically hear these children, without being taught it, give me a slice of your orange, I've given you a slice of my apple. It's not fair. And if he doesn't, he'll come up with the argument that it's not fair. It's not fair that, that the two children, never discussing it before, have this idea of what's being fair and what is not fair. Well, that's the argument the atheist is making, that we've already come to agreement that justice is right, that not giving someone the proper trial is wrong, and that it's monstrous for us not to be 
the type of people that it's wrong for us to sin and to serve a God like that. And I think it's important here to stop for a second and look at the actual story of the Amalekites and the command that was given to the Jewish prophet Samuel to give to King Saul. King Saul, obviously the the first king of Israel, Israel requests a king. And the command comes to Samuel and says, tell Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, that God said that he would blot them out hundreds of years before, but now's the time to do that. And so he gives the command of God through himself to Saul, who, of course, does not follow the full command. Saul goes into battle and he fights and fights and they win, they prevail. But Saul allows the people to take the best of the sheep, the best of the ox, the best of the goats, and take King Agog alive. Now the command was this. The command was was go into the Amalekites and slaughter every one of them. Bring them to justice with the sword for what they did in Egypt as you came out of Egypt. Do not let anyone breathing survive not the men not the women not the children not the infants even says not even the ox or the donkeys or the camels now why would god command something like that why would you even slaughter all the ox and the camels and the goats and and everything else it just doesn't make any sense you would think you could sell those things you would think that a god that commands sacrifice would want those sacrifice and that was the presumption that saul made that he would keep the best, and they were going to bring it back and sacrifice it to the Lord to be pleasing. That was the argument anyway. And Samuel gets word of this from God, and he goes and tracks down Saul. He says, Saul, why did you not listen? He said, well, I did listen. I, I, I completely annihilate the people, and I also save King Agag so that we could make an example out of him, thinking that maybe they would hang him and, and put him at the front of the city of the next king that they want to overcome or use him as a pawn piece and something else. And then also the animals, we're going to sacrifice these. And this is the famous line where Samuel says, what is this bleeding in my ears? I hear the bleeding of goats and of oxen. What is this bleeding in my ears? And then Saul confesses. And Samuel condemns him. In fact, he says that God regrets making him king. That's a separate argument for another time that how God could regret. Very interesting, though. If you'd like to hear about that, comment below. The area where Samuel condemns Saul, though, is that God has withdrawn his hand from you, Saul, that you're no longer God's king, that there'll be a better man that comes and overtakes you. And he says that you should not presume, you should not make inferences. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. This is one of the key principles that you'll hear throughout the Jewish writings. It even pervades even the Christian writings. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. And Samuel has them bring forth King Agag, who approaches thinking that death's already passed him. Like, if they were going to kill him, they, were, they would have already killed him. But Samuel gives him a curse and says, As you have caused many women to be motherless, so I will cause your mother to be motherless. And the prophet, the old man Samuel, takes a sword and hacks King Agag to death. It says, before the Lord. I would take this to mean something like, as a sacrifice. Now, what is the inference of obeying and sacrificing? I think this is important to note that you cannot obey without sacrificing. Because whenever you obey, your obedience requires the sacrifice of the alternatives. 
the alternative if you were to keep something, the alternative if you were to, to go in that original direction, the alternative that you, if you were to do the thing that you want to do and save the thing that you sacrifice. But also the idea of sacrificing cannot be done properly unless you're to obey the specific instructions. And this was the combination of King Saul that he did not obey and obedience is higher than sacrifice. And we'll get back to that in here in a second. So what we see here is a quadrant, is a four-pieced balance that we must keep the forefront of our minds that you've got God here and you've got evil and sin here. And you've got obedience here and you have sacrifice here. That they must all be done and all be addressed at certain times in certain ways. But they're also interrelated somehow. And so if as we get back into this conversation. We've already spoken about the World War II, the use of nuclear weapons as a prevention of the slaughter of millions, sacrificing a few in order to save millions. We've talked about this idea of the, the accusation of the atheist that God commands this slaughter of innocence, that how can I believe in this? How could we believe in a God that does this? That there should be some mutual shared moral law, moral framework that we all consent to, but we never discussed before. That's two the first two reasons why this is a fallacious argument by the atheists. The third thing I want to talk about here is this idea of divine command theory. I'll do this very, very briefly. The divine command theory says that if God commands it, it must be good, that you you have to do it. In classical theology, it might come across as something like this, that, that you always must obey the command of a revealed God, that if God reveals himself, you must obey the command. Because there's no gap for faith. If God has revealed himself, there's no room for faith. It doesn't require faith. It requires logical obedience. It's better to obey. So divine command theory, this is something that's been around for hundreds of years, even before Christ. In fact, Plato wrote in Euthyphro's Dilemma, is a very, very common thing to figure out, is, is something good because God commanded it, or is it is God good because he commands good? It's some derivative of that. And there's a, there's a third option here that God is good. Not that God acts good, but that God is goodness itself. The very definition of good is God. And we find this within the, the theology of who God is. That's the third argument, the divine command theory. I don't have a list in front of me. I'm just going off the top of my head is what seems evident to counteract the atheist accusation of the, the torturous or the, the murderous God. I think it was back in the 15th century in Florence. My wife and I, we traveled to Florence a few weeks ago, got to see all the great sites. Amazing, amazing city. Just a just a culture that is unrivaled even still. And part of the reason why the Florentine culture is unrivaled is because there's been that history of culture, that history of growth, the history of thinking and art and literature. It began with Galileo and, and involved Dante in the creation and the, the formation of the Italian language as we know it in its writings preeminently the Divine Comedy, where Dante forces, through sheer will, the use of the Florentine version of Italian to become the broadly accepted Italian. And then about 200 years later, you start seeing this prevalent family arise, this banking, this merchant family out of Florence, the Medici's. First, it starts really with Cosimo de Medici, who begins to dabble a little bit in the in the art of statecraft, the, the art of controlling and advising other countries and how their diplomatic relationships with each other should function. 
in order to obtain a different benefit. And I really recommend the book on World Order by Henry Kissinger as, as a good primer to this idea of statecraft. But in around 1488, a young man came to Lorenzo de' Medici. And you have to understand something about Lorenzo. Lorenzo attracted young men, young gifted men. He had, he had people like Michelangelo around him. He had people like Leonardo da Vinci around him. That he actually took them in and gave them funding and helped them build the artwork that you see today throughout Rome, throughout Florence, throughout Tuscany, throughout the very world. The greatest art that humanity has ever known has come because of a banker who was also involved in statecraft. And a young Florentine in 1488 approaches Lorenzo de' Medici with the gift of a book that he had penned for de' Medici. The young man's name was Niccolo Machiavelli. Niccolo Machiavelli, yes, that Machiavelli that you've often heard the misal attack of, that's, that's very Machiavellian, or that's very destructive in the Machiavellian tradition. This is Machiavelli. And he writes a book for Lorenzo de' Medici called The Prince. The Prince is a book on statecraft, how to take over and manage and run new city-states that you acquire. And he gives some tools. He gives some tips on how to do this. Things like if you take over democracy, it's going to be very, very hard to manage. So understand going in that it's going to cost a great sum of gold, a great sum of blood, and the king, the prince, will more than likely have to go there and reside there himself to be able to temper it. Things like that. Or things like if you were to overcome a democracy, it's much more difficult to overcome a democracy than it is a place where they were run by tyrants. That if you overcome a place run by tyrants, you must manage them like a tyrant. But there's one overcoming, overpowering recommendation that Niccolo Machiavelli has for Lorenzo de' Medici. And that's when you take over a free people, when you take over a princedom, or a princedom and a kingdom are very similar, a princedom is run by a prince, that you can't just expel the prince and his family. No, that would not be good. Because if you were to expel them, you would have to be worried about them. And when you're worried about them, you have to be thinking about them and burn energy on them. And you also create a counterparty that you have to negotiate against. No, it's better to destroy the prince. In fact, not only to destroy the prince, Machiavelli says, but also the entire family, the harem, the wives, the children, the grandchildren, the nephews, the nieces, the bastard children, the natural children. Machiavelli says that the wise ruler who comes in to take over will just get it out of the way. We'll just destroy them all. Because not only do you have to worry about them if they're still alive, even if they're exiled, but you also have to negotiate against them. That you, you get less out of negotiations because you've got a counterparty. Well, what if you didn't have a counterparty? What if you didn't have to negotiate with anyone because you had complete and utter supreme power? You would do better in the negotiations because there would not be a counterparty. And also, if you ever did anything wrong, the people didn't would not have someone that would be clear ascendant to the throne like they would have if they had the prior prince. And so it's just a matter of sheer practicality in Machiavelli's assessment that if you're going to come and create a nation, to create a state, that you would destroy the predecessors of that state. You would eliminate all the potential threats to your ruling. And so here we have an argument that God's divine command could be seen as just practical. Now, I don't know that it's proper to argue within the divine authority of God, that, that God is practical. 
I think it's probably clear that he's beautiful. And simplicity is classically thought of as beautiful. And practicality tends to be simple. So it's possible that you could reason that the beautiful God is simple. Although his ways are beyond our ways, his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And that simplicity could lend itself to practicality. But it's possible. And it's widely agreed that that is the most efficient way to take over a group of people. That's the fourth reason why the atheist demise of God, condemnation of God because God kills innocence, or is the condemnation of innocence. It's not a wise argument for the atheist. There's also this element of how you interpret the Jewish scriptures. How you interpret the Jewish scriptures. In fact, the argument of the atheist, again, this is the primary argument of the atheist, that God is monstrous, that God, I cannot believe in a God who would command the slaughter of innocents that this has been around since the first century and the second century. In fact, there was a church father, I consider him a father, many do not, Origen, Origen of Alexandria. He's an Alexandrian Jew. He was a, a hybrid of Jewish and Greek thought that argued from the Greek standpoint that dealt with this. Now, Origen was a type of person that was a little bit unique. He was ascetic. He did not own a pair of shoes. He didn't own a bed. In fact, this guy was so out there that even along with Tertullian, these are the only two major church fathers who were not admitted to the Catholic Church as saints because he was just so far out there. Example, I believe it's Matthew 19.12 where there's a, some talk about eunuchs and Origen reads into this that it's potentially good or called for him to become a eunuch and so he self-emasculates. Now, that's way out there. That is really an, an odd bird that would do something like that. We can all agree. Not a pleasant thing at all. But he did have some wisdom about him. In fact, he, he created a translation of scripture that was something modern times, 6,500 pages long. 6,500 pages long. I think it's, it's rumored it took him 20 years to write that. But he had a thesis. He had a thesis that, that the entirety of scripture should be read by the last book of scripture. The entirety of scripture should be read by the last book of scripture. Now, this is someone writing, I think he was born in 186 AD, so 150 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, writing about the book of Revelation. So anyone that says that everything in the scriptures was recently concocted, it's all a lie. Well, you've got someone outside of scripture verifying, articulating, and writing translations of scripture as recently as 150 after Christ. And he says this, says that all scripture should be understood through the last book of scripture. Now, what happens in Revelation? It's some, some insane stuff in Revelation, just to be frank, what John writes about. But he's writing metaphorically and allegorically. He's not writing a literal history or a literal prophecy of what's going to happen, although it is a prophecy. He says this, and this is an example of Revelation chapter 5 about how to interpret scripture, that at the end of the world, there would be a call for the line of Judah, the, the great savior of the Israeli people to come forth, the great line of science triumph to come forth. And as they wait for him, they don't see a lion come forth. They see a lamb. And even worse than that, they see a lamb that's been slaughtered. And you're expecting a lion, a powerful lion, but you see a lamb who's already basically dead come forward. Two dramatic things. They call for a lion, but they get a dead lamb, a slaughtered lamb. And the slaughtered lamb comes forward because they need someone who's able to open this scroll, the scroll that is sealed with seven seals. The scroll obviously is representative of scripture, of some sort of written form. 
And Origen believes that this is scripture. There's seven seals, and no one else can open these seals. But yet, this slaughter lamb comes forward, and he opens the first seal and the second seal, and he begins to read and tell of what's available and what's coming. Finally, he opens all seven seals. And Origen would say something like this, that in order to interpret what's written in scripture, just like the scrolls, that you must understand scripture through the perspective and allow the slain lamb of God to be the lens through which you read the entirety of scripture. And Origen says that every verse in the Bible, every word in the Bible can be interpreted three ways, literally, figuratively, allegorically, and third, morally, literally, figuratively, allegorically, and morally. And this puts us in a very, very interesting spot in that how do we read the difficult passages? And so let me give you an interpretation of the story of Samuel and Saul and the, the demise of the children in Origen's perspective, from the perspective of Revelation chapter 5 of the, the slain lamb. I think this would be helpful. And so the interpretation of the First Samuel 15 passage, the command to slaughter the innocent, in Origen's perspective, would essentially take a look at the two main characters of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament, obviously, the, the main character of the New Testament is Jesus. And potentially the main character of the Israelites after they've entered the Promised Land is Joshua. Joshua, whose name is very, very similar and very, very equivalent to Jesus, is this messianic figure, this salvific figure that brings salvation to his people, that leads the people, that creates the people, creates the, the nation of Israel, just like Christ creates his people out of the church or into the church. And as Christ leads his people towards heaven, towards their home, so too Joshua brings his people together and leads them towards their new home, Canaan. And as the New Testament people, led by Jesus, have to do battle with their enemies, the enemies of sin, the enemies of evil, although they're already overcome because God has said that they're overcome, so too do the people of Israel, as they've already headed towards their promised land, have to do battle against their enemies. And when God gives a command to utterly destroy the men, the women, the children, the infants, the ox, and the goat, and the camels in 1 Samuel 15, it means something. And think about this hierarchically. Saul kept King Agag alive. Think about it as a pyramid. King Agag at the top. The next value would be the men and the women and the children and the infants. And at the bottom would be these animals, the oxen, the donkeys, the sheep, and the camels. Why the camels? Why these specific animals? If you go back and you read, you'll find that, that the first three animals, except for the, the camels, were those which the Amalekites used and took from the Israelites. And it said that the Amalekites and their camels were as numerous as the sand on the sea. That the, It was the Amalekites and their camels that ate up all the grain of the Israelites. That's one reason why the camels had to be destroyed. But also remembering God that sits outside of time, that looks at all the timeline simultaneously. He knows that in approximately 13 chapters, when David is living in Ziklag, that the Amalekites, who were never destroyed, we come to find out that Saul did not destroy all of them. The Amalekites come back, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, and raid Ziklag while David and the troops are off to join the Philistines in a war. And when David returns, the women and the children have been taken by the Amalekites. And David and the military fighting men mount back up and go out to find 
And they do. They save the women and the children, and they kill everyone except. There are 400 young Amalekite men who get away. And how do they get away? They get away on camels. You see, not only does Saul not kill all the men and the women and the children or the king, he didn't even kill all the camels. You see, if there had been just young men and women left alive and they didn't have any camels, they would not have been able to escape. They would have been able to conduct the raids at Ziklag. They would not have been able to escape. If they left just the camels alive and killed all the people, there would be no people to commit the atrocity of Ziklag. And so you see the perpetual evil of the Amalekites go for all generations. That's not only the, the survival of the men and the women and the children, but also the camels and the animals. They were all safe instead of being destroyed. And even the king. What happened to the king? Well, it says that Samuel hacked him to death before the Lord, but then we have a problem. I think it's something like 300 years later, the book of Esther is written. And King Xerxes' right-hand man is a man by the name of Haman, the Agite, meaning one of King Agag, which is the, I think it's the hereditary name, the hereditary name of the king of the Amalekites. That there's a descendant of one of the kings who's been kept alive that then becomes the right hand of King Xerxes, who then deceives King Xerxes to issue a decree that all of the Israelites should be wiped off the face of the earth. This is 300 years later. And the Amalekites are never wiped out until something like First Chronicles. And so you have nearly a thousand years of Amalekite destruction because it's not addressed. And so as we interpret this through the eyes of origin, with through a New Testament lens, we look at this and we see that the evil and the sins through which we were called to fight against, that those can perpetuate generation to generation. They can last. And it's up to each generation to destroy it. Not just to destroy the sin, but as Bishop Robert Barron says, to destroy the sin all the way down. To send it all the way from the king to the people to the animals. Throughout the entirety of the hierarchy that was commanded in 1 Samuel 15. That the people that lead to the sin that can infect the people of Israel are also the equivalents of the sins and the pre-sins. The things that entice us, that would keep us out of living in heaven. And of course, if you're not in heaven, you were in hell. And so you must obey. And obedience requires sacrifice. Just like Samuel hacked the king Agag, you must also hack the most obvious sin, the most obvious enemy, the kings and the people, but also the things that are, in Orge's perspective, the things that are a little bit more innocent. And so allegorically we understand this, figuratively we understand this, that you must be brutal with your sin. You must be brutal with the things that entice you to commit evil. Because those are the things that you keep you out of heaven. But then we also have to deal with this. Let me wrap all of this together. Remember I said that we're dealing with four different problems simultaneously. The problem of how do we interact with God and evil and sin. And obedience, obeying and sacrifice. How do we interpret our proper perspective of all four things? And how do we address all four things? I would submit for your consideration, the answer is in Philippians chapter 2. That... It said that when God became man, he humbled himself and took on the very nature of man. He became obedient to death, obedient, obedience, to death, sacrifice, on a cross. God became obedient to death, sacrifice, on a cross. The one on crosses is cursed. Cursed is the man who's hung on a tree. It's said proverbially in Jewish tradition. 
So we have the, the existence of all four things in the same verse in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself. Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, he turns the glory back up to God. But what does that mean for us? That just seems like to be some sort of esoteric theological statement that, that aligns the words that we used. And also, as Origen said, if we have to interpret all the scripture, not only literally, but also figuratively and allegorically, and also morally, how do we do this? Because we've only talked about this, the slaughter of the, of the infants and the children and the, and the innocent and the animals and the kings and, and obedience and disobeying and, and sacrifice. We've talked about all these things, but but how do we find a unifying theory through which we can understand all of these? I would submit for your consideration that we must go back to the theology of who God is. He's not only omnipotent and omniscient. He is timeless. He is all loving. He's maximal loving. He's maximal good. He is good. And so as we look into this, we also see that I think it's Jordan Peterson that talks about the idea that God always tells the maximal story. That's a very, very interesting thing to talk about for someone like me that likes to think about these things narratively, not instead of logically. And so I would put forth this, and this is how I'm going to summarize everything. If you remember one thing, remember this, that God is the greatest love. And this, the greatest love is when the greatest person makes the greatest sacrifice in order to give the greatest gift to the least deserving. Let me repeat that one more time. You and I are the least deserving. The greatest love is when the greatest person makes the greatest sacrifice in order to give the greatest gift to the least deserving. You see, in one person, we find the culmination, the convergence, not only God and evil, but also obedience and sacrifice. They converge not only unidimensionally, but also across logic, literally, figuratively, allegorically, as well as morally. And so here are the eight reasons why the atheist is incorrect in asserting that God is immoral for condemning some to death. Hope this helps. Stay tuned for a couple of other recommended videos up here in the corner. And please like, subscribe. Thank you so much for paying attention. Have a great one.